This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. President Biden calls Vladimir Putin a crazy SOB. The lead starts right now. The president's unfiltered, telling a crowd of supporters what he really thinks, not just about his Russian counterpart, but also Donald Trump. The only person standing between Trump and the Republican presidential nomination, Nikki Haley, joins me this hour. Plus, the investigation now launched into a widespread cell phone outage. What cut service for so long for tens of thousands of AT&T customers? And days after his death, the mother of Putin critic Alexei Navalny says she's finally seen her son's body, but she claims the Kremlin is blackmailing her and putting conditions on where, when, and how her son's burial can take place. Welcome to The Lead, I'm Jake Tapper, and we start today with our politics lead, off script, off camera, and amongst friends, Democratic supporters and donors. It's where President Biden appears most comfortable leveling some of his sharpest and most direct attacks. Speaking at a fundraising event in San Francisco last night, the president took aim at several of his adversaries, including Russian President Vladimir Putin. Quote, we have a crazy SOB, that guy Putin and others, and we always have to be worried about a nuclear conflict, but the existential threat to humanity is climate, he said. Continuing the back and forth, the Kremlin fired back today, criticizing President Biden for sounding like a, quote, Hollywood cowboy. More specifically, Kremlin spokesman Dmitry Peskov said, quote, clearly Mr. Biden is demonstrating behavior in the style of a Hollywood cowboy to cater to domestic political interests, unquote. And today, Putin himself weighed in on a potential Biden-Trump rematch. Listen, we recently talked and you asked me who we prefer as the future president of the United States. I said that we will work with any president, but I believe that for us, for Russia, Biden is more preferable. Biden. Uh, Preferable because he's more predictable than Trump, Putin said, if you believe that's what he really thinks. But about that rematch in 2024, Biden also took aim at the Republican frontrunner and hit Donald Trump over Trump's attempt to compare his legal difficulties to the political persecution, poisoning, possible murder of Alexei Navalny, who died in a Russian prison a few days ago. I got indicted four times. I have eight or nine trials. All because of the fact that I'm, and you know this, all because of the fact that I'm in politics. It is a form of Navalny. It is a form of uh, communism or fascism. Last night, President Biden responded, quote, if I stood here 10, 15 years ago and said this, you all would have thought that I should be committed. It's astounding. President Biden also singled out Republicans in Congress for criticism, arguing that this generation is worse than lawmakers he worked with when he first served on Capitol Hill. Quote, I've been a senator since 72. I've served with real racists. I've served with Strom Thurmond. I've served with all these guys that have set terrible records on race. But guess what? These guys are worse. These guys do not believe in basic democratic principles. In response, House Speaker Mike Johnson posted on X, quote, Outrageous. 
the least popular president to seek re-election is now so desperate and so underwater in the polls, he's playing the race card from the bottom of the deck, unquote. Now, there might not be cameras, but there have been reporters at Biden's fundraising events. That's how we know what he said. And politicians tend to get a little looser when they think cameras are not recording what they're saying. You might remember when Barack Obama was recorded in 2008, when he was speaking at a fundraiser in San Francisco, talking about why working class voters might be voting Republican. Not surprising. They get bitter, they cling to guns or religion or antipathy to people who aren't like them, he said. Something about San Francisco fundraisers, I guess. But this all does raise a question in this modern era. Why is Biden kind of camera shy? Before Biden announced he was running for re-election last year, the New York Times had reported Biden has held the fewest news conferences since Reagan. Biden, again, declined to hold a traditional end-of-year press conference in 2023. And for the second consecutive year, Biden skipped sitting down for a pre-Super Bowl interview, a move his advisors allegedly made because, quote, they wanted to give the already fatigued public a break from politics during the big game. It was a curious choice by the White House, though, given that this is one of the most consequential elections ever, and the Super Bowl allows the eyeballs for one of the biggest, if not the biggest, televised event in the country. If you're running for president and a majority of voters think you're too old to serve another term, as polls suggest they think about President Biden, avoiding cameras might make it look as though you have something to hide. If you're telling us behind the scenes he is sharp and full of energy and on top of it and really in control and leading, you should film that. <laughs> that would be good to show to people. And then there's the Republican primary, which is still playing out in the next contest just two days away in the home state of former Governor Nikki Haley, South Carolina. And with me now is said Republican presidential candidate, Governor Nikki Haley. Good to see you, Governor. Thanks for joining us. I want to start with the fact that Congress right now appears to be barreling towards a March 1st deadline to fund the government or face a partial shutdown. Speaker Johnson facing pressure from the House Freedom Caucus to include policies in the government spending bill that would frankly, never pass a Democratic-controlled Senate, let alone be signed into law by President Biden, such as, for example, zeroing out the salary for the Secretary of Homeland Security, uh, Mr. Mayorka. So the option Speaker Johnson is facing is either pass another continuing resolution or allow the government to shut down. If you were president, what would you advise him to do? If I were president, I would remind every member of Congress, Republican and Democrat, that they have just one job, one job, and that's to give us a budget on time. And Congress has only given us a budget on time four times in 40 years. And so what I would say to them is if you don't get us a budget on time, you don't get paid period. It is not our job to get into their squabbles in Congress. It is their job to give us a budget on time and not make the American taxpayers feel this. That is a huge problem. We don't need to know how you make the sausage. We just need to know it gets done. And right now, nothing is getting done in D.C. That's the problem. That's why I'm adamant about term limits. That's why I'm adamant that they shouldn't get paid if they don't do their job. And that's what I think the American people want. So, how do you feel about the job Speaker Johnson's doing? He seems unable to do basic stuff without his speakership being threatened. Um, members of the House Freedom Caucus threatened to oust him if even if it even brought to the floor for a vote that bipartisan Senate foreign aid bill 
passed on a bipartisan measure in the Senate, aid for Ukraine, aid for Israel, if he even just brings it to a vote, not even support it, but just brings it to a vote, he could lose his speakership. What do you make of this dynamic? Well, I'm, the dynamic is the fact that um, with Donald Trump at the top, of the Republican Party. We lost elections in 2018. We lost them in 2020. We lost them in 2022. Um, you look last week, we lost a bill on, on Mayorkas. We lost a vote on Israel. The RNC chair lost her job. And Donald Trump had his fingerprints all over it. And the reality is we need to start saying, what do we need to do to get bigger margins so it's not about whether a speaker is going to lose his race? And a Marquette poll came out today. And again, Trump and Biden are margin of error. I defeat Joe Biden by 18 points in that Marquette poll. That's bigger than the presidency. That's House. That's Senate. That's governorships. That's everything. And when you go in with a mandate of double digits, that's when work gets done. That's what we need to do. We've got primaries right now. And I tell everybody, in a general election, you're given a choice. In a primary, you make your choice. This is the time for everyone to vote in the primary and understand we can't write the ship in our country if we can't win an election. And we have to win that general election if we're going to write the ship. I want to turn to the Alabama Supreme Court ruling on in vitro fertilization uh, and embryos. Uh, you have said uh, that you believe an embryo is a baby, is a life. Uh, but you also said the decision about what to do with embryos, that should be between a doctor and a patient. So I guess my question is, you then disagree with the Alabama Supreme Court, right? Yeah, I, but I think that the court was doing it based on the law, and I think Alabama needs to go back and look at the law. This is incredibly personal to me because I had both of my children with fertility, and what we want to make sure is two things. One, you want to make sure that embryos are protected and respected in the way that they're supposed to be. Two, you want to make sure that parents have the rights to make those decisions with their doctor as they go through in what they're going to do. And we want to make sure whatever we do, that we have plenty of opportunities and availability for, for fertility treatments to go forward. We don't want fertility treatments to shut down. We don't want them to stop doing IVF treatments. We don't want them to stop doing artificial insemination. We want to make sure that people are able to have these blessings. But I think this is, again, needs to be decided on the people in every state. But what what states need to remember is don't take away the rights of these physicians and these parents to have this conversation. It is too sensitive and too personal to not have that happen. Well, you, you seem to suggest there that they made the decision based on the law. But in the Alabama ruling, the judge, the chief justice, wrote in his opinion, quote, human life cannot be wrongfully destroyed without incurring the wrath of a holy God. I mean, that was what Chief Justice Tom Parker uh, had to say. That seems to be his personal religious view, not the law, as I understand it. Yeah, I had not heard that. I mean, it certainly does. And I think what we need to do is, look, if Alabama, what they need to do is look back at, at whatever it was this was. It's my understanding it was a civil case. But look back at that and say, how is this going to impact, you know, 
other women in the state of Alabama? How is it going to impact parents? How is it going to impact physicians who are helping these parents have their baby? And we need to make sure that we're not closing any doors. We need to make sure that embryos are protected. I personally believe an embryo is a baby. Not everybody's going to agree that an embryo is a baby, but that's why parents need to be able to have the decision on how they're going to handle those embryos. And they need to know that they're going to be protected, that they're not just going to be discarded by accident or that someone is not not properly taking care of them. When do you define when a fertilized egg becomes a baby? And the reason I ask is because there are some uh, Republican lawmakers out there who, who want to outlaw some forms of contraception, because as you know, some forms of contraception work by either inhibiting or blocking a fertilized egg from implanting in a uterine wall because they think the fertilized egg is a life, is a baby. They say that should be outlawed. Do you think a fertilized egg is a life, is a baby? I've always said I think contraception should be accessible. Very important. That's, again, it goes to the fact that people need to be able to have as much freedom to make decisions as they possibly can. This is where it goes back to the role of government, Jake. Government was intended to secure the rights and freedoms of the people. It was never meant to be all things to all people. And when you have situations like this, what I don't want to see happen is everybody look at Alabama and every state think that they've got to go and put some sort of laws or regulations on these processes that parents go through. You don't have to do that. All you have to do is make sure that parents are protected and make sure that there is a scenario where these embryos are protected. The rest is between the parents and the doctor, and we need to keep it that way. Today, The Economist magazine has an article out entitled, Is Europe Ready to Defend Itself? The article says even as the Russian threat is growing, Western deterrence is weakening. That is partly because of wavering American support from, for Ukraine. But it is also because Donald Trump, who may very well be the next American president, has cast doubt on whether he would rally to Europe's side following a Russian attack. The Republican Party and parts of the security establishment are becoming less committed to Europe, unquote. Uh, you were Donald Trump's uh, ambassador to the United Nations. What's your response to this? If you were president... Would you rally to Europe's side if there were a Russian attack? Absolutely. I mean, what we have to remember is we need to keep NATO strong. It's a 75-year success story. But you look at what Donald Trump said when he went off the teleprompter, which is, this, it's the whole problem and the chaos that starts this, is he said that he would side with Putin over our allies who stood with us at 9-11. You're going to side with a thug who kills his political opponents. You're going to side with a dictator who arrests American journalists and holds them hostage. You're going to side with a guy who's made no bones about the fact that he wants to destroy America. And our allies were there the second 9-11 happened. That's what that alliance is. And by him going and saying that he would actually encourage Putin to invade our allies, he just made every ally vulnerable and he just put every military member who's serving in those countries at risk. It was irresponsible. It's once again the chaos that he brought, that he brings to a situation, and it's dangerous. We need to let our allies know we will be there for them, just like they were there for us after 9-11. You've said that no matter what happens Saturday at the South Carolina primary, you're staying in the race. I wonder how much is your continuing to run for president, no matter what happens Saturday, how much is it about the chance that Donald Trump could possibly be a convicted felon later this year, and you want to be a, a plan B, as it were, for the Republican Party. 
what I'm trying to tell all Republicans and anybody, independents as well, anybody that's voting in those primaries is if you want a change in our country, which I think the entire country wants a change, we won't get a change if we don't win an election. Donald Trump will not win the general election. You can you can have him win any primary you want. He will not win a general election. We will have a female president of the United States. It will either be me or it will be Kamala Harris. But if Donald Trump is the nominee, you can mark my words, he will not win a general election. And what I say to everybody is don't complain about what happens in a general election if you don't really think about that in this primary. It, we can do better. You look at, I mean, these are the two most disliked politicians in America. Look at the polls. Look at what they're saying. 60% of Americans are saying Donald Trump's too old and Joe Biden's too old to be president. You look at the military. They cap retirement at 65. You look at pilots. They capped retirement at 65. We've got a lot to fix in this country. We need someone who can work eight years straight of hard work day and night, fully disciplined with no drama, no vendettas, just results for the American people. That's what's at stake here. And I'm going to continue to stay in and tell people this as long as I possibly can. So the trials have have nothing to do with your decision. And I, I would also note that I believe early on in the primary process, you raised your hand and said you would support the nominee, even if he were a convicted felon. Well, I don't think the American people would support a convicted felon, but I will tell you, I have a lot of issues with Donald Trump. I have said that. I have no bones about speaking that. I have even more issues with Joe Biden. The key is we don't need either one of them. I think the court cases absolutely hurt Donald Trump. Right now, it may be giving him a shot in the arm, but he has said himself he's going to spend more time in a courtroom than the campaign trail. All of March, all of April, all of May, all of June, when you have that scenario, the chances of anyone winning that Republican nomination, if he is the person, are slim. They are just going to keep going down. Half a billion dollars in judgments he's got so far. He's now got to figure out where that money's going to come from. 50 million of campaign contributions from his own um, campaign have gone towards personal court cases. Now they're trying to get the RNC on board and trying to get me out so that they can continue to help him pay for judgments in court cases. We can't win an election that way. It is literally impossible that we will win an election if Donald Trump is the nominee. So I'm going to keep pushing through. We have a, a country to save, and I'm going to continue to show people that w if I can beat Joe Biden by 18 points, guess what? That's a mandate to stop the wasteful mm -hmm. spending, get our country back on track. That's a mandate to get our kids reading again. That's a mandate to secure our borders. That's mm -hmm. a mandate for law and order in our cities. And that's a mandate for a strong America that we can all be proud of. All right, Governor Nikki Haley, have fun out there on the campaign trail. Thanks for talking talking to us today. Thanks so much. Go to NikkiHaley.com. And you can join me this weekend for special coverage of that primary coming up Saturday in South Carolina. Look for results and analysis right here. Coverage begins Saturday at 6 o'clock Eastern p.m., of course, only here on CNN. Let's get reaction to what we just heard from Nikki Haley. This controversy over IVF and embryos and the state of the GOP race, plus President Biden meeting moments ago with the widow of Alexei Navalny in California. All of that and more coming up. Cue the music. There you go. Thank you so much. That's CNN election music. Gets, you, gets the blood moving. Today's the last day for early voting for South Carolina's Republican primary, which is just two days away, coming up Saturday. Moments ago, you heard from Republican presidential candidate Nikki Haley, the former governor of South Carolina. She is the last Republican running against Donald Trump. 
She's trying to make her case why she should be the Republican to face off against Joe Biden. Let's bring in our political panel for reaction. Uh, Shermichael, we just heard Nikki Haley clarify her views on uh, Alabama's ban on IVF, declaring embryos to be people. Here's what she said just a short while ago on the lead. We don't want fertility treatments to shut down. We don't want them to stop doing IVF treatments. We don't want them to stop doing artificial insemination. We want to make sure that people are able to have these blessings. But I think this is, again, needs to be decided on the people in every state. But what what states need to remember is don't take away the rights of these physicians and these parents to have this conversation. What do you think? I mean, Jake, I'm a conservative, but I, I think we're getting into a territory where you're even losing Republican voters. I mean, many of them, a recent poll came out here and that showcased a plethora over majority actually support IVF. I think you're going to... Even a majority of self-described pro-life voters support exactly. IVF. Jake, yeah. I, mean, I think you're getting into a territory where even many Republican women will say, we understand the religious component of this, but we don't necessarily want the government utilizing compulsory force to dictate oh, these mean- things that should be between a family uh, and their doctor. <laughs> I, I understand that she attempted to clarify the remarks, but this is not an electoral strategy that I would want to win on in November, considering how successful Democrats have been thus far. Oh, Karen. Okay. I know. I know. I'm just I know where she's going. Go it ahead. It just sounds like you're saying that maybe government shouldn't tell women what to do with their bodies. I mean, I certainly, that seemed to be what Nikki Haley was saying mm-hmm. when she said parents should be making these decisions, which made me parents think. Parents and doctors. Parents and doctors. Yeah. So what about the woman who was pregnant in Texas, who was trying to make the decision mm-hmm. about the, the baby she was carrying that was not viable, that she had to leave the state. Her, she and her husband and her doctor were trying to make the best decision. And unfortunately, Texas said, we're going to sue you. We're coming after you. So it sounds like, you know, here's the challenge. So two things. Please, Republican Party, please keep talking about this. <laughs> oh, no, please, no. please, please. Right. Because uh, of, uh, to your point, millions of Americans across the political spectrum rely on IVF to get pregnant. That doesn't mean everybody gets pregnant, but if you look at the numbers of people who believe that it it gives hope to people who are trying to have children and who have struggled. And so if you're going to say, we're going to take away that hope, because the reality, part of what's coming out now in Alabama is, so are you saying to a woman, she would have to then implant all of those embryos, even if they're not viable and give birth to children that are not, is that what you're saying? If you're going to try IVF, I mean, it's, but again, it goes back to the very thing we said after Dobbs, these are the harms. If we're going down that path, understand these are the kinds of harms that you're opening the door to. And so, and it's not just that Democrats have done a good job on this issue. It's that Americans understand that it's not right. So, yeah. Mr. Michael, let me just go into more of what you were saying. Mm-hmm. Uh, Kellyanne Conway, former Trump White House yeah. official, pollster, she showed Republican lawmakers results from her firm's poll uh, when it comes to support for IVF. This is according to Politico. 86% of all respondents supported access to IVF. You, you don't get numbers like that for almost anything. Yeah. 78% support among self-identified pro-life advocates. 83% among evangelical Christians. And yet here we go. Here is, yeah. by the way, predictably, the next battle when it comes to this issue of when life begins. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I, the, the question has to be for, for many of the evangelical uh, conservative lawmakers, Jake, when, when do you stop with this? At what point do you stop? I mean, I talked to a very wealthy donor out of Georgia, and he said he had a conversation with another associate, a colleague of his, another wealthy guy. And his wife came to him and said, you know, I I get it, honey, 
but I think I'm going to vote for Joe Biden in November. And he asked why. And she said, because this isn't what conservatism is supposed to be about. I thought we were the party of limited government. And while I may not agree necessarily with women making this decision, I strongly believe they should have the choice. Then you look at younger voters. So if you're talking about having a party, Jake, where you have uh, viability long term, Karen, to many of the points that you just made, a lot of younger voters are going to say, well, I certainly don't want to vote for this party where they're restricting my freedoms. There's a lot of friends that I have, Jake, including some Republicans that have had a very difficult time having babies, getting pregnant, and they've gone through this process. I can't imagine having to explain to some of my friends, like, hey, our party has taken away this right for you to conceive if that is something they so yeah. choose. So this is not a winning strategy, Jake. The party's going in the wrong direction. So it's not just IVF, right? right. Because all the times that abortion uh, referenda have been put up uh, since the Dobbs decision, since Roe v. Right. Wade was overturned, every single time, whether it was Kentucky or Montana, or Ohio, every single Kansas. time, Kansas, every single time, the anti-abortion side lost. Right. Even in Virginia, where, remember, you had the governor trying to, in the midterm election, saying, well, it's not really a ban. It's a 15-week ban that's not a ban. Well, guess who else is now talking about a 15-week ban? Donald Trump. Last week, one of the most important things we learned is that he's been having private conversations about the idea of supporting 15-week ban. And part of what's important, I think, about both of these stories together is we can't let Republicans, Democrats, back off of what they're doing here. What they're saying about IVF, I think every Republican candidate, I want them asked if they agree, and I want Americans to take Donald Trump seriously when he says he will pass a national abortion ban. That's what that is. And is that something that we agree with and believe in, particularly knowing that Clarence Thomas has said Let's look at what else, based on that's what we thought was settled law, we should be looking like. Lawrence, Lawrence v. Texas, was that what it was? The, well, he, was? Yes, I mean, he specifically talked about um, marriage equality, gay marriage. He, yeah. of course, did a little carve out for interracial marriage, conveniently, I appreciate that. But again, what, and what we've seen in the polls, young men actually are now saying, particularly African-American and Latinos, well, what does that slippery slope really look like for me? What other rights could they yeah. take away? Sure, Michael and Karen, thanks so much for being here. Appreciate it. Moments ago, an apology from AT&T after a widespread outage left many thousands of customers without cell service, internet, or text messaging on their phones. But what caused this outage in the first place? We're going to come back with the investigation now looking into what went wrong. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number Smart Beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support, your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number Smart Beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? 
you need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. In our tech lead, AT&T says it has restored service to all affected customers. As federal agencies investigate how this nationwide disruption happened, look at the scale of self-reported outages earlier in the day taken by Down Detector, a peak of nearly 74,000 around 9 a.m. Eastern. That's just the people who reported it. And this is the second time this week that AT&T has been dealing with a problem such as this. CNN's John Miller joins us now. John, AT&T says it has restored service to all affected customers. A U.S. cybersecurity official tells CNN that there's no indication of anything malicious so far. So what do we know in terms of what happened? Not enough. Um, AT&T has apologized to its customers. It said service is restored. Uh, but what they haven't said is, here's what happened. And the cyber official who is uh, saying that they don't believe there's any indication of a cyber attack because AT&T hasn't told the FBI or, as far as we know, uh, the FCC or DHS what happened, uh, may not have enough information to make that determination, except for there's no obvious um, sign there. So the jury's still out on that. Officials in Atlanta say that AT&T also had technical problems on Tuesday. 911 services were down throughout Florida, Georgia, Louisiana, and Mississippi. Do we know if Tuesday's problem connected to what happened today? We don't, although we know that Tuesday's problem was limited to 911 systems, not to the entire network. It was shorter. It was restored within um, a, a smaller period of time. And that you know, after the big hurricane and all the damage, many of those 911 systems overwent um, almost total rebuild. So uh, what counties like Palm Beach were saying uh, just this week in the papers were is they're, they're going back through it and they're still trying to understand it. Uh, but one of the problems that's recurring here is AT&T with 100 million customers across the United, th across the United States, uh, a country of, you know, 380 million people, uh, was not communicating clearly today. Uh, it was multiple hours before they had a banner on their website telling everybody what they already knew, which is their service was out. Their social media on X, uh, once known as Twitter, uh, was all about other things, not the outage. Um, and even at this hour, we haven't heard from a chief executive or, uh, or a technical person with information. You know, the model that you and I know from crisis management and watching these things unfold is, here's what we know, here's what we don't know, here's what we're doing to fix it, this is when we're going to get back to you, and whether it's in this room or on what platform, uh, there was a great lack of communication so that even at this hour, as you and I sit here talking about this, we can't say, here's what AT&T is saying in detail. We do know um, that the government communicated about cyber actors from China and Russia um, infiltrating critical infrastructure systems, hiding tools within there, laying dormant. Um, but we also know in these cases, it's most often, if it happens at 4.30 in the morning, there is some pre-programmed pre systems change that's being executed that causes a domino effect that no one expected. 
We're just not hearing answers yet, and it's been some time. Yeah, we need answers. John Miller, thanks so much. Coming up, why the mother of Alexei Navalny says she's now being blackmailed by the Kremlin just days after her, done, after her son's suspicious death. And we're back with our world lead now. Nearly a week after his death, the mother of Alexei Navalny has finally seen her son's body. The 47-year-old Putin critic died in an Arctic Russian penal colony last week. Navalny's spokesperson says his mother, Ludmila Navalnya, was also shown the medical report, which claims that his death was due to, quote, natural causes. Today, his mother took to YouTube to share her outrage. Take a listen. They blackmailed me and set conditions for where, when and how Alexei should be buried. CNN's Matthew Chance joins us now from Moscow. Um, and Matthew, you asked Kremlin spokesman Dmitry Peskov about this. What did he have to say? Yeah, well, I mean, Dmitry Peskov um, wasn't particularly forthcoming. He said that uh, neither he nor the president uh, of Russia had uh, heard the allegations being made by uh, Ludmila Navalny. Um, but he said because of that, he didn't have any comment. And he said instead they were focusing on things that, quote, were, were, were important to the country. Um, but look, I mean, the conditions that, that, that Navalny's mom says were set were things like she must be accompanied at all times, you know, to Moscow uh, by a member of the investigative committee. She wasn't allowed to discuss where the funeral might be. In fact, not even decide where the funeral is going to be until she actually gets to Moscow uh, with the body, which would be flown in uh, on a special plane. I mean, Jake, clearly the authorities are not thinking about the, the welfare and the, the state of mind of the Navalny family. They're much more focused on how this is a, an intensely political event. Um, uh, Alexei Navalny is somebody who, as you know, was able to bring out tens of thousands of people onto the streets of Russia in life because of his anti-corruption campaign. And the authorities are now incredibly concerned that the funeral may provoke another outpouring of pro-Navalny support. Uh, and, and of course, people who support Navalny are against the Kremlin and against the authorities. And that's something they very much want to avoid, Jake. And we're learning that President Biden met with Navalny's widow and Navalny's daughter in California during this California swing. What, what more do we know about that meeting? Yeah, well, I mean, that was a meeting that was not announced beforehand. Um, we've seen pictures of, of it now with uh, uh, President Biden uh, meeting Dasha Navalny, uh, Alexei Navalny's daughter, and his wife, Yulia Navalny. Um, he offered them his condolences, of course, and spoke about how brave and courageous Alexei Navalny was. Um, and he also promised again, or restated again, that the United States would very shortly be announcing sanctions, strong sanctions against Russia and against Vladimir Putin, he said, uh, because of the death of Alexei Navalny and because of other issues as well, like repression inside Russia and the, and the war in, in Ukraine. So um, we're expecting to see another raft of sanctions from the United States uh, shortly uh, pertaining to this. All right, Matthew Chance in Moscow for us. Thank you so much. As the conflict in Ukraine caused by Russia nears the two-year mark, CNN sees what it's like to live in a city that has been blown away by bombs. We're going to take you there next. And we're back with our world lead. Ukraine Security Service says that Russia used North Korean missiles in multiple attacks against Ukraine, at least 20 starting in late December. 
which warns a supply route for weapons between Russia and North Korea is, quote, being established. This just days after Putin gifted North Korean tyrant Kim Jong-un a new limo. CNN's Nick Payton Walsh reports from the southern Ukrainian city of Kherson now battered after two years of full-scale war. It's night when it's loudest. Kherson has seen every stage of the war's two years. Invasion, occupation and liberation. Yet day is when the damage is clearest. Well, the Russians may be now on the other side of the river, but you can see the force of the explosions that hit here just by these tree branches thrown up here on top of a roof. And it feels kind of like a remote occupation through Russian drone strikes, artillery attacks as well. So many of the buildings around here devastated. But Russian positions are visible across the water. And on this side, freshly dug trenches show how worried Ukraine is still. Across the river, Ukraine sent troops months ago, their hopes of a lightning dash to Crimea stuck in this rubble. And this week, Russia raised their flag over the tiny Ukrainian foothold of Krinky. Kiev denied they'd taken it and said drone footage showed the Russians fleeing. Yet just metres from the roar of thousands of daily silent stories of survival. In a city Russia cannot own, only crush with seemingly inexhaustible shelling. At 4am, we were woken by three shells. They landed 100 metres away. So he's saying that they were first hit in November uh, and that blew out the glass in this flat here. So they moved to their mother's apartment over there um, and that basically saved their lives last night because the shrapnel from the mortar that landed here went all the way up into the flat where they used to live. In basement churches, the prayers are for basics. Spilling out into the light, part of a thousand people still in this district of the city, when before the war there were 30 times that. Sophia has outlasted her six siblings and gets food for her adult daughter. As Putin's war enters its third year, there seems no end to a million tiny, unseen agonies. Their old radio brings bad news of Russia assaulting Krinky.
Всех людей. А, крынки уже забрали. Да не забрали. Я вот слышала, не забрали. Трудно. Был бой с ним, не только один. Я скажу, Но я... Все равно не отодвинут. А чего? The war in every home, the normal, the boring, still targets today and tomorrow. Nick Payton Walsh, CNN, Kherson, Ukraine. Nick Payton Walsh in Kherson, Ukraine. Thank you so much. Now, many of you may have tuned in at this hour looking for that historic mission back to the moon. Our CNN space correspondent, Kristen Fisher, is coming up with why, is coming up with why the landing time has been shifting all day. Stay with us. I'm Ina Garten. Welcome to Be My Guest, the podcast. One of the best gifts you can give friends is spending time together. But what's even better than that? Cooking with them. On Be My Guest, the podcast, new friends and old stop by my barn for some conversation and great cooking. We talk about food, life, and everything in between. Listen to Be My Guest, the podcast with me, Ina Garten, and join us wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. Breaking this hour, significant new action in the investigation into the massacre at Robb Elementary School in Uvalde, Texas. Who is being ordered to appear before a grand jury? Well, we'll tell you. Plus, a devastating diagnosis for longtime talk show host Wendy Williams. Representatives say she has progressive aphasia, and dementia, what we're learning about her condition, that's ahead. And leading this hour, the United States is about to try to accomplish something it has not done in 50 years. We are counting down as a lunar spacecraft nears landing. And now history is in the hands of Odie. That's right, this is Odysseus, Odie for short. It's named after the wandering hero of Homer's epic poem, The Odyssey. And he's, well, it, Odie is a little over an hour away from hopefully touching down on the moon. Let's get straight to CNN Space and Defense correspondent Kristen Fisher. Kristen, you say that today's moon landing is your Super Bowl. Walk <laughs> us through what we're, what we're about to see. Yeah, well, I mean, this is the first time in my lifetime that an American-made spacecraft has attempted to land on the surface of the moon. It's been more than 50 years, so I'm excited to see it. Uh, this is what you call the Nova C class of lunar landers, and the one that you're talking about the one that's in orbit around the moon right now uh, is called Odysseus, or Odie for short. And so this spacecraft has been, um, it launched about a week ago on top of a SpaceX Falcon 9 rocket. It has traveled a quarter of a million miles to the lunar orbit, and now this engine right here is essentially the star of the show uh, over the next few hours. It is a 3D printed engine. It breathes both uh, liquid methane and liquid oxygen, the first spacecraft in orbit to ever do that. And this engine is required to slow Odie down uh, to just one meter per second and make what's called a soft landing or a controlled landing on the surface of the moon. And to do that, I mean, Jake, just think about it. It's like hitting a golf ball in New York City and having it land in a specific hole in Los Angeles. That's what it's like to land a spacecraft on the surface of the moon. And so in terms of timing, this is what it looks like. Starting at 6.12 p.m., you've got the power descent initiation. That's when that engine is really going to fire almost at full power. Then at 6.22, you have the hazard detection and avoidance. So this spacecraft is totally automated. So it relies upon 
cameras and sensors to guide the algorithm for its navigation system and find a safe place to land on the surface of the moon. It's got to watch out for craters, boulders, and big dead volcanoes. Uh, at 623, this is when it gets really critical. It's going to begin that vertical descent and then the landing at 624 p.m. Jake, if all goes according to plan, uh, you're going to have to wait 15 seconds before we know for sure if it has been a success or a failure. So the folks that are operating it at Intuitive Machines, the company behind this lunar lander, they say those are going to be the longest 15 seconds of their life, Jake. So Krista, where on the moon is Odie going to attempt to land? So it's going to land in a place that no spacecraft has ever been before. It's going to land in the south pole of the moon. I'll get to why that is a big deal in just a second. But you can see, you know, all the Apollo missions, Apollo 11 right here, landed in the, the Sea of Tranquility. That's a much easier spot to land in. There's a lot more sunlight, a lot fewer craters. Uh, the south pole of the moon, much more treacherous. It's darker uh, for a lot of periods of time. There's also a lot more craters. Uh, but Jake, in terms of the significance, this is a place where scientists believe there is ice, water. Uh, that, of course, could be vital for astronauts to drink, uh, to use for making food uh, in a future lunar base because NASA wants to build a permanent human presence on the surface of the moon. And it's especially significant, Jake, because that's also where China wants to build a lunar base. So we're really in the middle of this second space race right now. And both the United States and um, China want to build bases right there. So it's been more than 50 years since the Apollo missions to the moon, but it's still incredibly difficult to land there. Yeah, it is. And you look at the track record. I mean, you can see a failure is an option for lunar landings. More than half of all lunar landings have failed, including three just this last year. In April, uh, a private company, uh, iSpace, its Hakuto lander, crash landed on the moon in August. Russia, this is a government spacecraft, it crashed into the moon. And then just last month, uh, an American-made spacecraft by Astrobotic, uh, it failed just a few minutes after liftoff. So three in less than a year, Odysseus trying to uh, correct that record. And then the why, I mean, it, it's, it's frustratingly terrestrial, Jake, the reasons why. It all boils down to money. The Apollo program had hundreds of billions of dollars of 1960s dollars, 4% uh, of all federal spending from the US government. Today, NASA gets just 0.4% of all federal spending. And these commercial companies, Jake, get even less. We're talking about just $100 million. That's what you know Hollywood uh, tries. That, that's the budget for like a big Hollywood movie. So the other reasons, experience. Uh, the people in mission control have never done this before. All the Apollo mission controllers uh, are now long gone or past uh, in their retirement, so to speak. And then just the technical issues, the distance, it's really far. And the terrain, as I mentioned, really tough as well, Jake. This is still uh, just a tremendously difficult thing to do, even though humans first did it uh, more than half a century ago. Yeah, the year I was born, 1969, right? Kristen, mm -hmm. stick around. I want to bring in CNN aerospace, aerospace analyst Miles O'Brien and planetary scientist and author Jim Bell, who also works with NASA on its Mars rover missions. Miles, how significant is this moment we're in right now, the U.S. attempting something it has not in 50 years? 
Well, uh, just that fact is worth pausing and thinking about for a few moments. I, I must confess I am a little bit ambivalent about it. I, I wish we had been back sooner, but a couple of generations have passed. We don't have the institutional memory, so we're kind of relearning how to land on the moon. This time around, the goal is to stay there, to build an outpost, to have a sustained presence on the moon, and ultimately use it as a launch pad, uh, metaphorically at least, uh, for missions to go to Mars. We have to learn as humans how to live on an outpost like this before we can imagine going to Mars. And it's a lot easier to do that when you're waiting 15 seconds for a radio signal as opposed to uh, many minutes. So uh, this is a big moment and it's pivotal for NASA as it uh, thinks about its Artemis campaign to go back to the moon and stay there. And Jim, how does today's mission compare to what NASA and other companies are trying to accomplish on Mars? I know NASA has a mantra of moon to Mars. How does this all tie in together? Absolutely. And, you know, everything that's done in the robotic exploration of our of our solar system, the moon and Mars, is, is going to be feeding forward into human exploration. You know, think back to the 60s. It was the Rangers. It was the surveyors that paved the way for the Apollo landings uh, by those astronauts. And uh, today we're seeing, you know, landers on the moon. We're seeing landers and rovers on Mars, you know, finding out what the environment is like. Uh, determining what it's going to be like for those spacecraft to land there, for the spacesuits that they have to operate in, for the, the weather on Mars and the environment they'll have to be in, the kinds of soil that these landers will have to touch down onto, onto the moon. You know, this is this is really kind of foundational work for eventual human exploration of, of the moon and Mars. And, and Kristen, you were able to ask the CEO of Intuitive about why now, and he hinted that global competition plays a big role in this. Yeah, I mean, the whole reason the Apollo program happened was because uh, of U.S. competition with Russia. That was, or the Soviet Union back then, uh, that was the first space race. We are now in a second space race, this time with China. And so I asked Steve Altimus, the CEO of Intuitive Machines, uh, what exactly he thought about it. And he said, you know, hey, I think that competition in this case can be a good thing. Interesting. Let's roll that clip. In the previous administrations, we've actually heard the, 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 the words that we've been to the moon, been there, done that. Well, there's so much more to do on the moon and learn on the moon about living and working in space. If it takes uh, geopolitical tension to drive that to fruition, you know, that's okay. And to be a company like Intuitive Machines in the forefront of landing on the moon and think of our competitor is China. That's crazy. And, you know, look at what China has been able to accomplish uh, just over the last decade. They have already put three vehicles on the surface of the moon. The U.S., as I've mentioned, hasn't done that uh, since 1972. Hmm. Miles, what do you make of today's landing spot? Krista noticed that this is in an area that China wants to develop its uh, lunar base on near the south pole of the moon. How big of a, a global fight, uh, hopefully not actual fight, but, but at least competition, is there going to be in space in the coming years? Yeah, it's all about the ice, ice baby, to uh, uh, take a little riff from uh, <laughs> a bad rap. But uh, yes, it's, it, water ice was discovered there long after the Apollo astronauts <clears throat> left. And that changed the way scientists thought about the moon. 
and of course, where you'd want to set up a camp. Not only is it important for humans to have water just to survive, but if you think about what water is, hydrogen and oxygen, guess what? That's rocket fuel. And you can take uh, with a little bit of work and turn that H2O into something useful to uh, launch back off the moon to other places. Interestingly, this particular lander is the first to land using methane and oxygen fuel uh, as opposed to hypergolic fuels, hydrazine and nitrogen tetroxide to get technical. But if you think about methane and uh, liquid oxygen, that too can be produced on the surface. So this is all part of thinking long-term, which was never the case in Apollo. It was always a sprint, plant a flag, leave some footprints, and say you beat the Soviets. This time around, the goal is to stay. And Jim, you work closely with the cameras on board NASA's Mars rovers. What can you tell us about the cameras on board Odysseus or Odie? Yeah, yeah, Jake. There's uh, seven or eight cameras on this lander, uh, and I'm uh, assuming that uh, very shortly we'll see some of them fired up as the lander heads down closer to the surface, and hopefully we'll be able to monitor that. The the team in Houston at Intuitive Machines will be able to monitor that uh, from some of those cameras and see the surface get closer. One of the ones that's most exciting to me is there's a there's a small little mini satellite that gets ejected out of the uh, the lander, uh, a small satellite, I believe, built by students at Embry-Riddle University that gets ejected out of the lander that has cameras on it. And as it's falling to the surface, it's taking, you know, a video of or pictures of the of the lander landing on the moon. I don't know if we'll get that live feed, but hopefully it'll all survive and we'll get that down eventually. But uh, lots of cameras. And so this should be hopefully a really exciting visual event for NASA and for intuitive machines and for commercial space writ large. It's a big day for commercial space. So commercial space, intuitive, and then there's also the government, NASA. How important are these public-private partnerships when it comes to exploring space for the United States? They have already become absolutely critical. And, And today's mission actually plays a big part in NASA's mission, the Artemis program to return American astronauts to the moon now by 2026. So what they're doing is they're essentially outsourcing all of the robotic missions to private companies. They're saying, hey, here's $100 million, go do this fast. Eventually, if this mission is successful, they want them to use this to bring up uh, rovers for the astronauts. So it's kind of a supply mission eventually uh, for the Artemis astronauts. Uh, And again, that should be happening in 2026. All right, Kristen Fisher, Miles O'Brien, Jim Bell, thanks so much. And keep it here for coverage of the moon landing. Ahead, I'm going to talk with NASA Administrator Bill Nelson about the significance of this mission. And coming up next on The Lead, a brand new decision today from the judge overseeing Trump's civil fraud case where he's been ordered to pay $355 million. Stay with us. And we have some breaking news for you in our Law and Justice lead. The Austin American Statesman newspaper reports that several law enforcement officers who responded to the 2022 Uvalde school mass shooting must now testify before a grand jury investigating the botched police response, adding that in-person testimonies are expected to start next week. As you may recall, 19 children and two teachers were killed while police waited outside for more than an hour before ultimately killing the shooter. CNN's Shimon Prokopis joins us now. Shimon, you've been covering the fallout from this horrific massacre from the beginning. Do you know who exactly is being ordered to testify? 
Well, some of the reports are indicating, Jake, that it's the officers from the Texas Department of Public Safety, some of the first responders, as well as other officers, perhaps, from the Uvalde Police Department. Remember, there were some 376 officers that responded to the scene that day, perhaps more than they even needed. And so it could be any number of officers some of the first initial responders from any of these agencies that could be called before this grand jury. And what this really does is it's significant because it gives the grand jury an opportunity to ask these officers questions. And of course, what's being investigated here is whether or not the response here, the lack of response by officers and the fact that there was no leadership here, whether or not it rises to the level of criminality. And that is something the DA said that she would do, that she would be presenting this case before the grand jury, and finally now the process is underway, Jake. How does the U.S. Department of Justice's incident review that came out last month on this, how does that play into this, if at all? Well, certainly it was scathing, right? And it lent a lot of credibility and a lot of, um, it substantiated a lot of what the family felt and what others felt, that there just was not a good, adequate response here. But it should not play any role in the grand jury because it was essentially a civil investigation. It was not a criminal investigation. But I think publicly, it certainly helps the DA in what she's trying to do here. Have uh, any of the victims' families reacted to this major development? Yeah. So I spoke to one of the victims' family, a survivor, uh, her mother, and she actually told me that they're learning of this news through these public reports. They've had no contact with the DA about this, but they're excited because they feel like the process for accountability, at least, is underway. And the idea that grand jurors, that someone is going to be able to ask these officers questions about the failed response they feel is very significant. And certainly this mother is very excited by this news, Jake. Shimon Prokopez, thanks so much. Also, just in, in our Law and Justice lead, the judge overseeing Trump's civil fraud case, today denied Trump's request to delay finalizing the $355 million order CNN's Kara Scannell joins us now. Kara, what exactly did the judge say today and how soon will Trump have to make this giant payment? Yeah, Jake, so the judge denying Trump's request to delay the finalizing of this judgment. You know, as you recall, on Friday, the judge issued the order, but it doesn't go into effect until the judgment is entered into the court docket. Now, Trump's lawyers had asked the judge to delay it another 30 days, saying this so they could have an orderly process, given the, quote, magnitude of this judgment. But the judge saying that he didn't see any basis for doing so. And so he indicated to the parties today, both the New York Attorney General's office and Trump's lawyers, that he would enter the this judgment today. Now, we can see it on the docket, but it hasn't uploaded just yet. But this means that from this point, once it is officially entered, Trump will have 30 days to appeal the decision and put up the $355 million plus nearly $100 million in interest or post a bond to that effect unless they can work out a, a different arrangement. So he'll have about 30 days to get that in order. Now, as another practical matter, part of this judgment is that there will be a ban on both Trump from running a business in New York and also on Donald Trump Jr. and Eric Trump, who were also found liable for fraud. They can't serve as directors or officers of a New York business for two years. That will also go into an effect. It's not clear who will then take the reins of the Trump organization. I've reached out to their spokespeople. They have not gotten back to me today. Jake. All right, Kara Scannell, thanks so much. Coming up, a brand new report on the war between Israel and Hamas, revealing horrific actions by the terrorist group on October 7th are, are much more deliberate and systemic than first believed.
Before we begin on this next topic in our world lead, I want to give a warning to our viewers. The following report will contain some disturbing content regarding sexual violence. One month after the horrific October 7th Hamas attack on Israel, we reported on, on multiple firsthand accounts of Hamas terrorists raping and sexually assaulting Israeli civilians during the attack. We also noted the lack of international outrage. In January, a survivor of the Nova Music Festival told us that he saw with his own eyes Hamas terrorists laughing as they gang-raped a woman, then killing her with a knife. And just last week, Sheryl Sandberg joined us to discuss her new documentary, which profiles a freed hostage and horrific details of other hostages suffering sexual abuse, perhaps even right this minute. And now, a brand new report from the Association of Rape Crisis Centers in Israel shows that Hamas terrorized Israeli civilians by carrying out brutal sexual assaults, quote, systematically and deliberately, unquote. Joining us now, uh, Orit Solizianu, uh, the CEO of the Association of Rape Crisis Centers of Israel. Uh, Orit, the report says, quote, numerous testimonies and pieces of disclosed and classified information present a clear picture of identical patterns of action repeated in each of the attack zones, the Nova Festival, private homes in the Gaza envelope, kibbutzim, and IDF bases, unquote. It's been more than four months since the October 7th terrorist attack on Israel. How difficult was it to gather testimonies and evidence of these rapes and sexual assaults? So I want to I want to explain what was our method, methodology, and your question is very well. Uh, uh, since the seventh uh, of October attack, immediately one day afterwards, we, the Association of Rape Crisis Centers, already got information about survivors from the attacks and about uh, and about. The, the fact that sexual violence indeed has occurred. This information was like a trickle. You know, in the beginning, nobody in Israel even imagined the truth, the reality that this was something intentive. In the beginning, we all, we, many Israelis thought maybe this a rape or an abuse, sexual violence happened in one place or it was a sporadic thing. This is what we thought in the beginning, but. Every day when we started to get more information, we understood this is not, this is something different. By the way, I must say, we never, never, never had in Israel sexual violence used as a weapon of no war. And we never guessed or believed it could happen. So what we did, we started to collect all the information we have. First of all, information from uh, uh, public resources. There were many very well uh, made uh, uh, journalistic uh, investigations. Mm -hmm. We also made interviews and we also collected information that we have, which is not public. I want to say one thing. One of, uh, one of our missions or, or thoughts is not to run after victims. You know, you know as a journalist, everybody wants uh, to hear firsthand story, but this is really not ethical in this time of, of the thing, because a woman who has suffered gang rape by Hamas terrorists now has to rehabilitate this horrific, mm -hmm. horrific sadistic trauma. Israel believes that there are still about 100 hostages in Gaza that are still alive. Um, the report says that Hamas terrorists are likely still raping and sexually assaulting hostages, even if the hostages do eventually come, come home safe, and obviously we all hope they do. How does one even begin to recover from something so awful? You know what? It's a very hard question. Uh, and also everybody, you know, in the country 
is so worried now because, you know, Israel is such a small country. Everybody knows everybody. Everybody knows someone who knows a hostage or a hostage family. So, so we all feel it's like our family. How to recover? It's, it's hard. It depends on your character. It depends on your surrounding. Of course, they will get therapy, but, but it will take a long time. And, you know, many questions are asked. Even today, the hostages who have returned, some of them told stories of what happened to them or what happened to hostages they saw over there. It's, it's not easy. It's, I, don't, I, won't, I won't say it's easy because, you know, my work as an NGO that uh, helps uh, victims of sexual violence in Israel, and I met so many survivors. Mm. Some of them succeed to rehabilitate and others not. You know, you can never guess. But what happened this time in Israel is I think it's one of the brutal, sadistic things that ever happened in the world in the, in the recent decades. Yeah. The report also states that some of these rapes were carried out in front of an audience of the victim's partners or family or friends intended to, quote, increase pain and humiliation of all present. Do you think that th these Hamas terrorists uh, were instructed to do that? OK, I think so. And I want to explain why. You know, we are an NGO. We don't get money from the government of Israel. We only get money from philanthropy, from people who really care to combat sexual violence. So this is, first of all, very important to say, because we are an NGO that we are dedicated to help survivors. This is our mission in the world. And when, when we started to collect the information, we didn't know what will come out of the report. But as we saw the macro picture, this is what came out, because we see that in every terrorist scene, every crime scene, the same methodology happened. There were uh, body parts, cut off, gang rapes, uh, putting uh, grenades in women's, sorry, uh, genitals. I really don't want to be too graphic but it, because it's very horrific, but it didn't happen in one place, one spot. It happened systematically. So when you look at it in a macro level, you understand that they got instructions to do that. You know, as we learned in Israel and as some of the the, the terrorists that were were uh, uh, caught and put uh, uh, captivated by the Israeli uh, IDF, they spoke and they said, we were sent to this place and the others said, we were sent to that kibbutz. So, but you see from all the information that the same things happen place after place. You know, so you understand that it's very logical that this is what they got, a directive to harm, to shoot, to mutilate, and in this way, uh, harm the, the Jewish people in Israel. Yeah, so they got directives to do this horrific, sadistic, mm -hmm. brutal massacre. What do you say to the pro-Palestinian activists out there who are skeptical of all this, who say it's a lie, it's all being used to, to justify um, a brutal campaign by the IDF in Gaza? What's your response to them? First of all, again, you know, I, I'm not in this, this kind of politics. I, I take care of victims, but I do have an answer. You know, what happened in the 7th of October happened. One day afterwards, as I said, we, because we, we're, we, we deal with rape. So, of course, the community in Israel that, de that deals with these kind of things is very close to us. And as I said, we got immediately, the, the day after, information that these things happen, you know, and the, the, the war started only because of that. Nobody, I, I have to say as an Israeli and as a mother of, ch of a child who is now in the army and all of my friends, 
many of them have children in the army. We don't want to, to our children to die. We don't want wars. We want peace. I want peace. And, uh, uh, and if, if uh, Palestinian activists deny that, I think it's very dangerous. You know, you can condemn uh, Israel for its politics. You can condemn Israel for many things. But I am sure, you know, that every person if, who sits uh, one day Saturday morning in his house, 7 o'clock in the morning, just wakes up and drinks a coffee, and suddenly a terror, uh, terrorist goes inside, shoots, mutilates, and kills, the sense of security of yourself is totally mm-hmm. uh, just breaks down. So, and and you know, all of us I saw uh, because I wanted to to see what happened. I wanted to see all the uh, all the videos and the and the clips that the Hamas photoed. And I looked at them. You could see they photoed what they did. You know, yeah. they, 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 there's a lot of footage. You know, but they did them themselves and very quickly. Uh, it's all in Telegram. You can see up till today many, many horrific things. So I have to say to the pro-Palestinians, I really respect if you're pro-Palestinian, you can be pro-Palestinian. I'm pro-Israeli. You can respect whoever you want to respect. But don't uh, don't look at this horrific slaughter and just uh, deny it. You know, it happened. And uh, the terrorist group that did that, is not legitimate because these are crimes against humanity. And really, mm-hmm. I think you have to put politics aside when you look at this horrific massacre of civilians, of little girls. You know, it's yeah. it's something unbelievable. I don't think many people understand that till they come to Israel, go around the, the, the burned houses in the kibbutzim and start to hear the yeah. hostages, what they say. Many people don't understand what's going here, unfortunately. All right, Orit uh, Solitiano, thank you so much. Appreciate your time today. Thank you. We'll be right back. And we were back with the breaking news in our out of this world lead. We are learning that the lunar lander, which is scheduled to try and land on the moon in just minutes, is experiencing some possible issues. This is the United States first attempt at a moon landing in more than 50 years. And joining us now to discuss none other than former Florida senator and current NASA administrator, Bill Nelson. Uh, Administrator Nelson, thanks so much for joining us. So what can you tell us about what's going on? Well, it's white knuckle time. Their ability to land is not with a radar, but with light pulses called LIDAR. And it is on the blink. It's not working. It's not working. But they are trying to do, since there are six NASA instruments, uh, experiments on board, One of those experiments is a LIDAR, and they're trying to patch the NASA LIDAR to the spacecraft and its control system. And so this is really one of those white-knuckle times right at the last minute. If they cannot patch it, then it crashes? They would uh, keep working the problem. They would not at at 6.10, they're to do a, a, a controlled descent. They would wave that descent off for one more try at about 8.30 this evening. But that would be the last chance that they would have to land. So, have you ever seen anything like this before? Well, uh, everything that we do is right on the edge. Uh, One of the greatest success stories ever 
was Apollo 13, when we had three astronauts on the way to the moon and the explosion occurred. And real time, they figured out how eventually to get those three astronauts back to Earth. And that was white knuckle time for about four days. Right. Uh, that turned out to be one of the great success stories in NASA. This is uh, an uh, uncrewed lander. It's a commercial lander, so it's not a NASA lander. But that's the whole purpose of having this is we can pay for the services a lot cheaper than doing it ourselves, send our own instruments on these landers, let them be scouts mm -hmm. for us before we actually land with astronauts on the moon. Do, do we know that there is the ability to patch through this experimental LIDAR NASA experiment that's on the ship into the, whatever you call it, the mainframe of the ship. Is that possible? Is, do they know how, that they can definitely do that? Uh, it, to my knowledge, is not something that they've practiced. So this is real time trying to figure out uh, if they can do that. I think they'll be able to patch it. And then the question is, can they get it integrated into the software for the landing system? And we're going to know that pretty soon. The, the light pulse radar that you call LIDAR, do we know why Odie's LIDAR went out? I don't have that information. We just know that there is an attempt to patch through the NASA experimental LIDAR into Odie's mainframe to make it work. 610 was when you were hoping this would happen. You said 830 is the... Is would be the next landing attempt approximately 8.30. I don't know the specific time, but in other words, they'd get one more chance uh, if they do not start the descent burn at 6.10. But uh, let's hope that this might be one of those miracles. On the other hand, you know, this is a high-risk operation. Right. We said on the outset, we'll be lucky if half of these commercial landers called the CLIPS program, we'll be lucky if half of them work. If half of them work, then we've got all of this information from the surface of the moon, in this particular case, from the South Pole, where we want to land astronauts because we think water is there. If there's water, then you've got hydrogen and oxygen, you've got rocket fuel. So just to, just to recap, the, the light pulse radar or LIDAR they know is not working. There's a hope uh, that the LIDAR experiment that NASA has on ODI can be patched through onto ODI's mainframe so that it can be, uh, so that it can work, so it can land. 610 is when the descent would begin if they're confident they can do it this time. After that, the next time that the descent can begin is at 8.30 about p.m. Eastern time. What happens if they're not ready to do it at 8.30, is that it? It will crash or it will just like fly it, out into space? What happens? It's my understanding that's their last chance. And whether that eventually degrades into a crash on the moon or out into space, I don't know the answer to that. The worst case, just to remind people, there's nobody on the ship, so there's right. no, there will be no loss of life. Um, but we don't know whether if it doesn't work, it would end up just crashing on the moon because it's caught in the moon's orbit, or if it would just, we just lose it forever. Correct. 
And, and think about now, this is the whole program of us going back to the moon. We're going to a different part of the moon. The, it's the, not the, the equatorial part. Yeah. We're going to, if this is the moon and this is the South Pole, remember the sunlight comes in at an angle. So there are crevices and there are pockmarks from big, big uh, 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 asteroids hitting. And so a lot of that South Pole is in shadows. Huh. This is all the more why we wanted to send these commercial spacecraft scouts to scout out the area before we land astronauts. Because when we do, you can't be a little off the mark because right. you might tip into one of those big craters. What happens to the hope to get people back on the moon, men and women back on the moon, if Odie doesn't land successfully, if this doesn't work? That will not affect the human landings. It will not affect uh, our launch next year uh, of a human crew around the moon. And two years from now, it will not affect uh, the landing of the first time back on the moon after a half century. When uh, the Apollo missions were going on, uh, spending was about, I think, on NASA and space exploration was about maybe 4% of the federal Correct. budget. Now it's less than one-tenth of one percent of the federal budget? It's about a half a percent. Half a percent of the federal budget. Um, as long as you have uh, the microphone here, is there anything you want to say to the people who make these decisions, whether at the White House or in Congress? This is part of who we are. We are, by nature, explorers, adventurers. We're going back to the moon, not just to go to the moon. We're going back to the moon to learn, to live, to experiment, to invent, to create in order to go further, and that is to Mars and beyond with human astronauts. All right, well, fingers crossed for a successful landing and a successful patch through of the NASA LIDAR experiment to Odie's mainframe. Administrator Nelson, it's great to have you here. Thank you so much for taking the time to explain to us all what's going on. Thanks, Jake. We'll be right back. And our pop culture lead, that was talk show host Wendy Williams back in 2019, coming back after a medical leave. And today, the care team for the beloved daytime TV star announced that Wendy Williams has been diagnosed with progressive aphasia and dementia. That's in addition to a number of other serious medical conditions that Williams has otherwise been very open about on her show for years. CNN's Elizabeth Wagmeister has the latest on today's revelations. Elizabeth, what did we learn today about this sad story? This is such a sad story, Jake, and today we have learned that Wendy received this diagnosis last year in 2023. Now, the timing of this diagnosis being publicly revealed is interesting because this weekend, Wendy Williams has a documentary coming out on Lifetime. She is an executive producer on this documentary. Now, we have to remember, in 2022, amid her health struggles, Wendy was put under a court-ordered financial guardianship. Now, just yesterday, before this public diagnosis, Jake. I spoke with Wendy Williams' niece. She tells me that they are very close. She tells me that Wendy is currently in an inpatient facility receiving care for her cognitive issues. I asked her how she's doing. Let's take a look. 
What I can tell you is that she sounds great. I talk to her only when she calls me. Uh, if I miss a call, then oh well, I have to wait for her to call me back at some point. But she has been, wherever she is now, she's been there for a few months and she's sounding good. The last time I spoke with my aunt was, I would say a few days ago um, when she called me. She is doing well. Uh, she sounds healthy. Uh, it's, it's a huge departure from what people are gonna see in this documentary. So as you heard there, the family says that she is doing better, Jake, but they also have concerns about this guardianship and they say that they have been totally shut out from it. And you were a, a frequent guest uh, on the Wendy Williams Show. In fact, you filled in as a guest host. Um, what was that environment like? You know, Jake, there was only one Wendy Williams. There is only one Wendy Williams, and she was incredible to work with. Now, it was no secret that she was dealing with these health issues, which is the reason why I was brought in to fill in as a guest host, because as we know, Wendy was not on her show for the entire last season, but it really speaks to the power of Wendy and her unmatched talent and her fan base. They kept this show on for an entire year. The Wendy Williams show on TV without Wendy Williams, and eventually they ultimately had to cancel it, and now we know why. Elizabeth Wagmeister, thank you so much with that sad news. The latest we're hearing on the possible navigation issues with that Moonlander, Odie, that's next. We are getting ready for a big show on deck tomorrow here at The Lead. My big guest, California Governor Gavin Newsom. That conversation is part of my Homeless in America series. That's tomorrow on The Lead, starting at 4 o'clock Eastern. We'll also talk about politics, of course. Then on Sunday night, look out for my new CNN original series, The United States of Scandal. This weekend, we're going to take a look at the shocking story of John Edwards, the former Democratic presidential hopeful. His wife had cancer. He had a baby with his girlfriend, all while he was running for president. Riel Hunter, the former girlfriend, we're going to look at the scandal through her eyes. Check out his story Sunday night at 9 p.m., only on CNN. Coming up next in the Situation Room, the latest timing on that mission to Mars. The attempted landing is still about 10 minutes or so away, 20 minutes or so away. NASA Administrator Bill Nelson just told me that the lunar lander, which is named Odysseus, or Odie, is experiencing some serious navigation issues. They're attempting a solution with experimental technology on board. We should know within the next 10 or so minutes whether they're going to be able to try a landing in the next hour. Then, of course, if not, around 8.30 will be their last chance, the administrator said. This is the first time the U.S. has tried a moon landing in more than 50 years. This one, part of a public-private partnership between NASA and Intuitive Machines. Our coverage continues now with Wolf Blitzer in the situation. See you tomorrow. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.